Welcome to Spotlight McCall, conversations with local luminaries on their inspiration, creativity, and vision. I'm Renee Silvis, and today we're talking with Serhi Gust Stavinsky. Serhey has a vivid and unusual background. He was born in 1979 in Ukraine when it was part of the Soviet Union. Raised by a single mother, he remembers the Chernobyl disaster and the dissolution of the Soviet Union. He came to America in 1998 when his mother won a green card lottery. Serhi graduated from Columbia University and served as a New York City police officer from 2000 to 2007. He then went on to study law, graduating from Valparaiso Law School in Illinois. <laughs> it's Indiana. Oh, that was in Indiana. Yes. Okay, uh -huh. thank you. <laughs> Eventually, like many of us, he made his way to Idaho practicing law, and eventually becoming Chief Deputy Prosecutor in Valley County. Thank you, and thank you for having me here, Renee. You're welcome. You know, looking back now with my life's perspective, there's definitely, life was very different from what it is in the United States. Growing up, you had the Soviet Union, and you had one party running, the Communist Party running the country. There was ideology that everybody had to subscribe to, the official, the communist ideology, and it was everywhere. So talking about propaganda, anywhere you went, we had posters, especially more my childhood was school. In school, that was always talked about, how great Lenin was, and how great communism is, and that was kind of like the main focus of the country, ideologically. You were told how to think. Yes. You were taught that it was important to believe in these ideals. Yes. But, uh, so my family, uh, because, well, Ukrainians especially, when they went through the forced famine in the 1930s, and my family survived through that fam uh, famine, many people didn't, so millions of people died. Why was it a forced famine? Because it was a class war against uh, farmers. Communists was basically because farmers were independent and not, they were not relying on any kind of help from anybody. Stalin did was called the collectivization where they took over private land and collectivized it into big farming entities. And you had to give up all of your land and all of your cattle and everything else. So the farmers starved, which seems ironic. Mm -hmm. The people producing the food were the ones who endured the famine. Yes, because what the government was doing back then was they would go in and every harvest season the military would come in and they would take all the food, any kind of food you can, from you know, grains and everything else, animals, and just take it out and just leave people to starve all the winter. And that was happening for, for about two years. They would surround villages with soldiers and nobody could come in and nobody could come out. Basically, people would be starving there. So what were the effects of that for you growing up? What was like, how did that influence your life? You're talking about the whole uh, communist ideology and everything. So mm -hmm. my family never joined the Communist Party. And they did it consciously because they were against that ideology because they saw what it could produce. I didn't so, know you could disagree with the party and live there. You could. Were they persecuted or? Yes, but uh, they were prosecuted and also they were... So basically, let's say if you're a teacher, and you're a teacher and you're a member of the Communist Party, you get twice the salary than a uh -huh. teacher who is not a member of the Communist Party. Or any other promotions, if you want to become a manager at a factory or prom be promoted in the military or any other any organization you work for, being a member of the party was your ticket. So was this the beginning of your education about social justice, to be inspired to make the world better? Yes. Definitely, because even though I would go to school and listen to all 
all this ideology. I remember when I was very, very little, maybe six years old, and they had this old big presentation about Lenin, how awesome Lenin is. So they had this whole class about it. He was this amazing man who only thought about how to help everybody and improve this world and socialism is the way of the future and the whole world is going to be a communist one day soon and because it's a, the most uh, progressive and the only ideology that works. I came home and I was like, hey mom, you know, I learned about Lenin today, it's so amazing. And my mom is like, do not listen to this nonsense. She said, this is all bunch of nonsense, do not ever believe that. And the reason I brought it up first time in six years, because in my house, there was never talk about any kind of political or anything like that, or uh, Lenin, Stalin, not, not, not in a good way. Was your family normal, or did most people go along with the party line? Most of the people did not. Ah. Back in the Soviet Union, everything was talked about at, at the kitchen table. Uh -huh. And you go to every single house and you sit around the kitchen table and drink tea. And the only thing that people did was complain how corrupt the government is, how inept it is. So and people how... did not buy the line? No. But they would go out into town and pretend or exactly. to try to survive? Exactly. Uh -huh. Yes. And that was just basically a majority. I mean, the party was very strong. And by the time I was born, it, I mean, they were not like coming at night and taking people to jail. Sometimes they did. I mean, the KGB was very, very prevalent. It was a big organization. They had millions of agents everywhere. So if you said something that stood out of line or, God forbid, had like a book, like, you know, a Gulag Archipelago that would be imprinted in the West and smuggled to Soviet Union, and everybody read it, you know, <laughs> everybody had a copy at home. But if somehow somebody who is pro-communist party found out about it and they would tell on you, that you would get a visit from the from the So KGB. you grew up in a culture of with a little bit of fear. Yes. Always mm -hmm. kind of watching. Exactly. Fear, huh. exactly. Always watching, fear of the government, fear of people uh, telling on you, being very careful what you say how you say it, who you say it to. My wife is making fun of me. She's like, you, you don't trust anybody. And I was like, yeah, I don't. It's <laughs> like, because of where I came from, I was like, right. nope, that's just in me. I mean, that was a survival technique. You so know? tell us how it all fell apart. You were there when in um, the collapse. So then you know, there was a Chernobyl disaster, which was a big event. When Chernobyl happened, I was actually like in central Ukraine, not too far away from where it happened. The government didn't tell anybody about the disaster. So the official line is, small incident, everything is fine, nothing to worry about. They had this big parade on May 1st, you know, May Day, which is a big uh, you know, labor celebration. Everybody was out, the streets. So that was a big event because then the news started to trickle in. Something is going on, you got to be careful. It's hard to hide the truth, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. And mm -hmm. you can see, you can tell by the... Uh, the Communist Party leadership because they, they would take their kids and send them away. You think this is part of why things began to fall apart? Yes. Chernobyl was a, a part of that. Exactly. People never really truly believed in any of that in the first place, but they kind of went along with it because it's kind of like, well, what options do you have? It's, it's like you can't leave the country. What Chernobyl happened. And then we still have Afghanistan going on. Yeah. A war in Afghanistan. And especially for Ukraine, because there were so many soldiers who were Ukrainians who went to Afghanistan, and so many of them coming back in caskets or coming back wounded. I had many relatives who were in Afghanistan, and they were talking about all the horrors that was going on there, you know, and they just couldn't understand why they were doing it. 
I mean, there was no rhyme or reason for the Soviet Union to be in Afghanistan. And that was going on for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. It, so many people just were fed up with Afghanistan and you know, burying their children and also with the, with the Chernobyl. Of course, there were other issues. I mean, the economy was just collapsing. There were lines everywhere. You had to stand in line for everything, you know, because it was a planned economy. So everything was planned in Moscow and then so decided there. And then everything was just kind of trickled down to all the other republics. Once planning goes away, something goes wrong, there is no system to replace it. There's no room for creativity or Mm -hmm. innovation to fix a problem. Exactly. But people were still doing it. So they would actually just get on the train Mm -hmm. and go to a different region, pick up some food or tools or appliances. People did yeah, it on their own. People exactly. Take, you know, humans are mm-hmm. always creative mm-hmm. in that way. We're just going to take care of things. Yeah, exactly. So people got by. That was the, the 1980s. And then uh, with more and more government allowing more and more freedoms, it was a political politic change with Gorbachev called Glasnost, mm-hmm. which means basically make it loud so it let other ideas come in. People were a lot more open. So basically, but the economy was collapsing and there was no around it. I mean, obviously, the reason the Soviet Union collapsed was because these little republics, 15 republics, they started splitting apart. Mm-hmm. Because every republic in the Soviet Union had a right for self-determination, which means that they could, if these people could come in and say, we don't want to be part of the Union anymore. And Ukraine kind of led the way in that, right? Yeah, yeah. so the Baltic states were the ones that left first, mm-hmm. but Baltic states were pretty small territorially and even not that significant politically as Ukraine was. Once Ukraine left Soviet Union, that's it, it was done. Ukraine had second biggest military after Russia and all the resources, nuclear weapons, industries, and so on and so forth. Was there a sense of collective relief, excitement, were people just exhausted? What was the feeling when that happened? You know, the feeling was fear about uh, the future. Uh. People were very unsettled. Everybody knew that something had to happen. But the way Soviet Union fell apart with that, basically the leadership was like, okay, we are out. And now it's like, nobody knows what's going on. So it was basically chaos. Now every republic had its own government and all these people coming in, you had the old communists, you had the new uh, Democrats, and you had all kinds of different organizations, parties and nationalists, and you had all kinds of, and it was just big chaos because they were trying to build this new country out of what this old system. So it was cash. And because the, the central economy collapsed, no central uh, planned economy anymore, everybody had to do something on their own. And that was basically like the, it was called the wild, wild east. There was no order. The, the gangs started to appear, many organized crime. Of course, the, the communist leadership, you know, they became uh, capitalists and they all started believing in God, they, they were like, they switched, it's like overnight. They were like, yes, we like the West. But what they did, because they were in leadership positions and factories and natural resources and military or else, they, they, there was this privatization. It's like, well, we need to give all this the property the government has back to the people, basically like a shock therapy. They had some economists come in from the West and from the United States and said, you know what, and it was a very kind of radical kind of free market theory that they were testing on the Soviet Union. Instead of like, okay, let's see what we have, let's see what we can do. They're like, just completely deregulate everything and just let things go where they are. The and wild, wild east. Exactly, the wild, wild east. Where there's a vacuum, something will fill it. Yeah. So a lot of things 
you, you mentioned the mafia. Yes. So organized crime stepped in. Mm -hmm. Maybe people who had really good intentions stepped in. It was just mm -hmm. a big experimentation. Yes, exactly. And then they were experimenting on normal, regular people. Yeah. Is this why your mom decided to leave? It was too chaotic? Uh, it was, yes, yes. It was definitely too chaotic. And even, even in 98, you're talking about nine years, eight, nine years after the collapse. Yeah, and, you came in 98. That mm -hmm. was well after. Yeah, it was well after. It was still like that. Really? It was just, yes. I mean, the currency was basically non-existent for a while. So like we had savings in the bank and they were just evaporated. It just it, it was gone. It was gone. It had no value. Exactly, it had no value. Did people trade in goods? Yes, there was lots of trading going on. I was raised by a single mom, as my sister and I. And when she lost her job, then we had to figure out what to do and how to survive. Because we lived in the west part of Ukraine, closer to Western Europe, so we had access to basically cash. So back then it was you know, German Deutsche Marks and sterling, sterling and French francs and dollar, obviously. And so we would buy dollars because the currency rate was lower in the West. We'd go to central Ukraine where my, my grandma lived. We would sell the currency there. We would have the money saved. We would buy food there, take it to the West, sell the food because the food was more expensive there. And we would have a profit. That's how you earn money <laughs> yeah, for a while. Exactly. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the way you do it, it's like you literally have these money changes. We were like yeah. part of these gangs, but I was, you know, a little 14-year-old kid. So there you go. You're being creative. Yeah. And you just walk up to them and be like, you know, how much is the dollar? It's like so much. It's like, oh, I'll give you this much for it. Okay. And you would just count out the money. You know, there's stacks of cash. Just count out the money. I gave him the cash, all right, thank you. So everybody was doing different stuff. I mean, people going to China and to India, to Turkey, was buying like clothing, anything you can imagine. Well, it becomes a free market. Exactly. That's, that's, that's true free market. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So tell us more about why your mom decided to leave and what that was like leaving for you. And did you want to come to I, America? I did, yes. I mean, so she won a green card and it gave her an opportunity to, you know, to, to bring me with her. And it was, yeah, that was another thing. It's just, it's a lottery. You literally, back then, you take a piece of paper, you write down your basic information, and you glue your picture, and you just mail it to, like, a Department of State address. And literally, the chances of winning it is basically like chances of winning a lottery because okay. millions of people play every year, and about 50,000 people get it. You know, she sent it in, and she won. And I was 17, 18 years old. And, I mean, so I graduated high school. I went to the university. But there was really not much really to do. I didn't have any kind of prospects for the future. And I got my barber's license. <laughs> my mom was like, you know, it gives you something that you can do with your hands mm -hmm. if everything else falls through. Yeah, anyway, we just packed our bags and, and flew to New York. You wanted something more for yourself. Yes. You know, and it's, you know, learning a new language, new culture. And I mean, America, for the rest of the world, America is the country of opportunity. You know, this is where you can actually make something happen. We know we always knew it's not easy, but at least you have a chance. Okay. Yeah, and it's, it depends on how hard you work, and you have a chance of succeeding. So, what was that like landing in New York? America is very good at portraying itself. You watch movies, right? In the news, you always see New York City. You know, you see skyscrapers and you know, bustling economy, and it's like everything is beautiful and helicopters flying. And so we fly into JFK, and it's like okay, you know, it's a nice airport. But then we get a cab to drive to Brooklyn because we had uh, people who said they'll take us for the night. And I'm driving through Brooklyn and it's just like, you know, most of Brooklyn, especially if you go to JFK, 
there's really nothing much to look at. You know, <laughs> you know broken down Pretty buildings. Low key. Yeah, it's uh, like barbed wire everywhere. You have know, these kind of we do all these housing projects. It wasn't glamorous. Yeah, it was. It was kind of like very similar to uh -huh. my city because that's you know how in Soviet Union housing projects were based on American projects. Khrushchev came to America. Oh really? And he saw all these big projects coming through. It was back right you know in the 1950s and. He loved it, so he went to back home, back to Soviet Union. He was like, I want the same thing. So we had all these like same, you know, buildings everywhere, same layout, everything else. So anyway, so I'm driving to Brooklyn. I'm like, where are the skyscrapers? <laughs> Why did they make all this effort to come and it looks just like home? Yeah, exactly. So that was a little shock, you know. The friends were supposed to take us on, it, it didn't work out. So we actually ended up in Brighton Beach, which is a big uh, area for immigrants from Soviet Union mm -hmm. and Russia. And the cab driver just dropped us off on, on the corner on Brighton Beach. And it was like midnight. So literally, it's like because no, there's nobody who can take us on. We don't know what's going on. We don't yeah. know the language or anything. Yeah. Where did you sleep on your first night? Basically, in New York, they have these big newspapers. You can just pick them up. Russian language newspaper and you go to the back. There's all kinds of ads. And there was many ads for to let people sleep in an apartment on the floor for the night. And it was $10 rate. You just come in, pay your money, you sleep and you leave. So we just called the this old lady and she's like, yes, you're coming in. <laughs> at midnight. At midnight. She just welcomed these Russian, yeah. <laughs> newly arrived immigrants. Yes, yeah. Now, see, there's trust for you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I trust, I trust regular people because I think I trust regular normal people because there is that goodness. And, and I think no matter what happens, in something bad happens, people always stick together yeah. and help each other. And help each other. I yeah. agree. And, it's like, and you mm -hmm. see, I've seen it throughout my whole life. Never trusted the Soviet government or any ideologies or anything mm -hmm. like that. And for me, like every single immigrant from the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union, is afraid of the government and doesn't trust the government because they come from that mm -hmm. mentality, KGB, you know, police state, concentration right. camps, right. And, you know, forced famines and stuff like that. So we trust each other. Exactly. And that's the only way to do it. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and yeah, and she took us in and we spent a couple of nights, well, actually probably like a week. You know, mm -hmm. we rented an apartment. And at some point, we had an apartment big enough where we actually did the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And I would, like, come home, and it'd be, like, just random people sleeping on my couch. Like, I don't even care. <laughs> Welcome to the immigrant experience. Yeah, exactly. That's it's, what it's, we don't yep. see that in the movies, do we? No, that, exactly. That's, yep. <laughs> that's the way it is in New York. And mm -hmm. I imagine any sort of port city with an yeah. immigrant population. Mm -hmm. So... Tell us about your progression. Was Columbia University next? How did so, all that happen? So now, so it was basically, I started working at Tower Records almost immediately. Mm -hmm. And I spent almost a year at Tower Records. So then I went to college and I went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York. It was a good school. I spent about two years there. One of my professors, she's like, you know, you, you need to go to an Ivy League school. You got the, the, the education, you got the smarts. You should, you should definitely. So I, I apply to Columbia and I get accepted. How about so, that? I know. What was it you wanted to study or what, was you, what were you passionate about? What made you go into cr criminal justice? So I started, so yes, in John Jay College, I was always, because I grew up in this you know, organized crime and lawlessness and corruption, I really, I didn't like it. I just say that. I didn't like corrupt governments. I didn't like organized crime that was literally tied with it. You could not run a criminal uh, organized crime enterprise without 
okay and supervision of the state. Because there would be a little cooperation. Exactly. And you, you know, felt that was inherently wrong. Exactly. And you wanted to somehow change. So I grew up, I didn't like crime, I didn't like lawlessness. Um, I wanted to somehow change that. Yeah, I could never accept that. So John Jay was a good school for that, criminal justice. But a year in, they had this program in New York City Police Department called Police Cadet. Basically, you, you become part of the NYPD. Uh -huh. And you go to academy, but you are a civilian, so you don't carry a firearm, but you have a uniform, and you work inside the precincts, you work with the cops, you learn a lot, but also you earn some money, you earn benefits, and it gives you good experience. It was sort of like an, an apprenticeship or an internship yeah, with the police? Exactly. What was that like for you to go work with the police? Yeah. I mean, there's something <laughs> in you had to hesitate about that. It, it was, exactly. It was. But I was like, you know, I want to really learn this. And my, one of my friends from college, and he's like, yeah, you know, if you like that kind of stuff, you should, you should check it out. So okay. I went. And it was very interesting because you learn the internal culture of NYPD and you learn administration, you learn how every department works, like uh, there's domestic violence unit, uh, major case, which was like big, big robberies and stuff like that, and homicide units. And actually, I went on patrol in, as a ride along many times, and it was fun too. Um, and then you learn the community, you know, the interaction with the people, how important it is. Because I wanted to learn the system and I wanted to kind of see what it's all about. Mm. Because, you know, ultimately, yeah, I wanted to do something good. I believe in the rule of law and I don't like the corruption. I don't like incompetence. So did you know that you wanted to become a police officer at that point? Yes. Uh -huh. So I knew. And everybody was laughing at me. So, you know, you go to Ivy League school and you become a cop. Ha ha. But I was like, that's all I wanted to do. You know, I got good education. I met the very interesting people. Even as a cadet, and I took many reports, you sit there and people come in and report a rape. And you sit down and you take this report and talk to people. I mean, drugs, we had violent crime. I mean, we had all kinds of stuff. You could handle it, though. Yes. You had lived through that. Exactly. You knew how to talk to people. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I thought the department loved having you, a Russian immigrant mm -hmm. and someone who had studied law. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so I graduated from Columbia and went right into police academy. Well, can you tell us about 9-11? So I was still a police cadet during 9-11. So oh, okay. actually, so I was going to school, to college. Uh -huh. So like from my building where I lived in Brooklyn, I could see the Twin Towers. Mm -hmm. So I'm about to leave and I see one of the towers, smoke, you know, there's smoke coming out and there's something burning. And I'm like, well, there's always something burning in New York City. Like, not, not so surprised to anybody. Then I go down and I'm in the elevator and the janitor from my building, he's like, hey, you know, like a plane hit the, one of the towers. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's kind of crazy. It's like, but again, I mean, it has happened and it yeah. happened in the past. And I was like, you didn't think much about it. So then I get on the train and the subway. And then by the time we get to blast stop by Brooklyn Bridge, uh, they get an announcement and say, hey, you know, the second plane hit the tower. Everybody needs to leave the, the train. So they stop the trains. Uh, everybody goes upstairs. So then I go up, up to the street and I see all these people walking across the bridge. And they're all completely white. And it's talking about thousands of people just walking across Brooklyn Bridge and yeah. they're all covered in this white dust. And you knew something was wrong. Uh, yeah, I was like, what? And it's like this lady, I was like, what happened? She's like, one of the buildings collapsed and the dust just covered everyone. So then the cell phone stopped working. Two guys standing there, they were in suits. They show me the Department of Treasury badges, so Secret Service 
because Secret Service is like actually in New York City. Unit is actually in Brooklyn. And I, you know, so they show me a badge. They're like, you know, we're Secret Service, NYPD. I show my ID, you know. And they go, yeah, you guys got all called in. I was like, ah, my cell phones don't work. I don't know what's going on. They was like, yeah, you guys uh, all got called in. So I just walked to the local precinct, which is next to the Brooklyn Bridge. I don't know what's going on, but I'm here. I'm reporting for duty. Good for you. Like, I'm here. Yeah, exactly. Well, so, I don't know what's going on, yeah, but I'm here. Yeah, exactly. And that's the whole part about, like, you know, New York City cops, if there's trouble, people run away from the trouble, and, and, and New York cops are going towards the trouble. It's just, a, it's just their nature. And then you hear, listen on the radio, nobody knows many more planes in the air. Nobody knows mm-hmm. how many has been hijacked. They're concerned about common buildings being attacked. So I just went in, and I spent that whole day. I was basically in the precinct uh, running the phones. I didn't really do much. Somebody had to do that part, too. But it was, you know, just right away, just very just camaraderie and people coming together and just very friendly, bringing food to us, pizza and fruits and Mm -hmm. vegetables and, you know, coffee. It was just amazing. You really were part of a community then. Yes. I guess Mm -hmm. at some point you've really arrived. You really are an American at some point. Yes. Mm-hmm. When did you actually become an American? When did you go take the, my citizenship test? Yeah. So I, I so I graduated Columbia in spring of two thousand four, and that's in the same time in the spring of two thousand four, mm. I got my citizenship. How was and that? It was very exciting. Yeah, yeah. They they make it special. You go to the federal courthouse, and uh-huh. federal judge talks about what it means to be a citizen and rights and responsibilities, and they give you a certificate. So it was definitely a very very important day. In but my by life. that point, though, you had invested six years. It, oh, yes. You had given your time and love to mm-hmm. the school and the police department. You had been invested. Exactly. Yeah, I was basically, I, by that time, I was already part mm-hmm. of this country, exactly. After it's been five years, it's kind of just reaffirming your ideals. What do you think you learned from your years as a police officer in New York? What were your biggest takeaways from that time? You know, the, the government is there to serve. And no matter what's going on, you're there for the people that you serve. So it's not like, you know, us against them. It's always you got to realize that, you know, these are taxpayers and we are providing a service to them, no matter who these people are. You know, victims, defendants, witnesses. And you have, to, you have to respect people. You have to treat them as humans. You have to listen to them, uh, and then people will respond to you. Your people's skills, that's what makes you mm. a good police officer. And mm. you get that respect from people. You only have power if somebody thinks you have power. But for to be a cop, people have to respect you, not just fear you. I mean, there's a lot of that, too. And then you get tested, you, know, you get into fights, we have riots. Um, Things go better when there's respect instead of just fear. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly, because you just can't arm wrestle everybody. I mean, you cannot uh, just beat everybody into submission. Yeah. You know? What units did you serve in? So when I was a cadet, I was in PSA 1, which is a public housing. So we have uh, in New York City, there's public housing police, there's transit police, and there's NYPD. Mm-hmm. So I started out in public housing over in Coney Island, and that's why I lived. So I actually served the people I lived with. You know? nice. I, just, I would just walk home eat lunch and come back like in my uniform so i don't have a gun on me i don't have a radio nothing just yeah. says nypd 
They trusted you then? Yes. Uh-huh. After I graduated, and went to police academy. I went to 7-3 precinct. It's a Brownsville area of Brooklyn, about one square mile. At one point, they had one of the highest murder rates in the whole city. It's like 90% unemployment, lots of drugs, lots of violent crime. So Mike Tyson, the boxer, he actually grew up in Brownsville. So yeah. you served in a pretty rough neighborhood. It was very rough. We did all food posts. Uh, it was back then, so impact area that was called. So basically, it was a theory was to flood bad neighborhoods with as many cops as possible, put them in every corner to prevent uh, serious crimes. So you just spent your days walking around? Yes. Walk around, you talk to people, you see something wrong, you go and approach them, and people will challenge you. I mean, they try to toughen you up, so you're by yourself. So the help will come, but nobody knows when, because they want you to be able to be on your own and be able to handle things. So it was kind of like a trial by fire. You would get up and do the roll call, and then our sergeant would be like, get out of the precinct, don't come back till 10 hours. Wow. So he's like, I don't want to see you, I don't want to hear you, just leave. <laughs> so that was... Mm-hmm. But it, from your upbringing, though, you knew how to handle un- being yes. things being unpredictable mm-hmm. and things being a little chaotic. You were probably well-suited for that. Exactly. Yes, I was like fish in the water with that. I loved it. I really did. I loved actually being a cop on the streets and working. I did not like the politics because they had all this like in NYPD, it's like you had to have it. It's called the hook. And the hook means it's, an, it's a slang. All cops have slang and, and they have their own language. So everything is based on the hook. So the hook is a connection with somebody in a power who can get you a good position or help you out. And then if it's like a really serious favor, then it's called a crane, you know. So <laughs> I went right to the impact, you know, football. So that was the lowest, the worst place to be because I didn't have any. I mean, I knew people, but I didn't want to. There weren't any crane hooks around. Exactly. There was no crane hooks. You could, just, exactly. you could just go meet people and do yeah, your job. Exactly. Did you do that for your whole career or did you work in other units? So after one year in, in 7-3, I got injured on the job. I was mm-hmm. fighting with a guy who was on PCP. I injured my pectoral. I actually ripped completely my pectoral muscle. Mm-hmm. Um, spent many months in physical therapy, big surgery. After recovering from the injury, I was transferred to 8th Fall, which is next to Brooklyn Bridge, which is the precinct I was at during 9-11. And that was much different because of downtown Brooklyn, uh, many wealthy people, fancy buildings. It's a very popular place for affluent New Yorkers to live because you have a nice view of Manhattan. So it was very different for me. And it was kind of weird because I never got like, get used to it because we have Brooklyn Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, was a, which were, especially Brooklyn Bridge was a top terrorist target. What we had was, because it's a suspension bridge, right? So you have cable rooms on both sides, on Manhattan and Brooklyn side, that holds the whole bridge together. So all you need to do to collapse the whole bridge is blow up one of those cable rooms. So we had 24-7 police cars stationed mm-hmm. next to those cable rooms. Mm-hmm. But my friends were laughing, you know, because it's like, well, they're like, well, like in 7-3, you know, you get beat up and you get injured, you can get shot or stabbed or something. But, you know, you might survive. But it's like in 8-4, you sit on the Brooklyn Bridge next, next to the cable room. And if they blow it up, you just die. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it doesn't sound that, like it's that interesting. <laughs> it wasn't that interesting. Yeah, no. I mean, you yeah. just sit on the bridge 
make sure that nobody drives up to the cable room and puts a bomb next to it. Yeah, I don't see you being that interested. <laughs> so did you finish out your career there? Or Yeah, yes. Uh, okay. So, yeah. So, I mean, I always wanted to go to law school. I just wanted to get a little more life experience mm -hmm. and be exposed to actual real life and how the system works. Yeah, I applied and uh, got into Valparaiso University. And I quit NYPD. And moved to the Midwest. Yes, that's, to the Midwest. That's a totally different culture. What it, had you want that life? It was so weird for me because Valparaiso is a nice town. I don't know, maybe 30,000 people, 35, 40,000. Totally different. It was, first of all, it was very quiet. And I would like, I would wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like panicking. I was like, what's going on? Something there's no isn't... noise. Yeah, there's no noise. What's going on? The so cord doesn't weird. make any noise while it's growing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So weird. I was like, honestly, I could not sleep for the longest time just yeah. because it was... because in New York, you have shots firing and sirens and people screaming and music. You know, that was the kind of my ambient noise that we fall asleep to. Yeah, and now you're in the Midwest attending law yeah. school. Yeah, and, and then it's like, I walk down the street and people say hi to me. And, you know, I'm back in Ukraine, again, I lived in a fairly big city. I mean, people kind of knew each other, but not very friendly. But here, it's like you walk down the street in the Midwest city and people say hi to you. And you're like, what do you want? Why are you saying hi to me? Because uh -huh. like the only reason people are friendly in New York is they're trying to sell you something or try to convert you to some religion. That's it. It's like in the Midwest, it's like, hi. I was like, what do you want from me? <laughs> like, right, right. You know? So that was kind of bizarre. Yeah. And it was, but it was very friendly and very laid back. And I kind of got the first time ever kind of this small town feel. And I was like, you know what? This is not bad. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have to sit in traffic for two hours. And it's like, I don't have to be always on guard and I can actually just relax. And for the first time in your life, yeah. maybe you could actually relax for an extended period of yeah. time. Well, yeah, exactly. So you had to learn how to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think I'm still learning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> because it doesn't go away. Because it's like, uh, yeah. So you didn't stay in the Midwest very long, did so you? So three years. Yeah, mm -hmm. and then you somehow you made it to Idaho. How so, did that happen? So I met my wife, Amy. She was in college. In oh. Paris, and I was graduating law school. We met, and she wanted to go back to Idaho, and so she lived in Idaho Falls for a long time. So she loved it. She wanted the mountains. Mm -hmm. She said, "I want to go to the mountains." Like, okay, whatever. I mean, I didn't have any specific. You know, I took the Illinois bar, and nothing I, was keeping you there. Exactly. You didn't have any ties. Exactly. Is your mm -hmm. mom still in New York? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. You were in love. Yes. And this woman says, let's go to Idaho. Yeah. And hey, you've cultivated a spirit of adventure by yeah. now. Yep, exactly. It's like, yep, let's do it. I just gave all my stuff away, like my furniture and everything. You know. You've done that before. Yeah, it can exactly. be done again. Yeah, exactly. It's just no stuff. No big deal. I don't, I'm not attached to stuff. Then just pack up the car and come here. And um, I was just kind of hanging out, uh, waiting for my bar results from Illinois. There was a job opening, but I was I need to do something because I can't just sit around all day. Mm -hmm. There was a job opening at the law office in Idaho Falls. Well, it was like a paralegal or something. So then you had to take the Idaho bar? Yeah. I had to, and then the next year I took the Idaho bar. So I got the job and then I got results back almost immediately. So I was, uh, it's called legal intern, mm -hmm. which is basically you can practice law if you have a license in another state. Oh, okay. And then so after a year, uh, we got married and then we moved to Boise. I got my results for the Idaho bar and, we, and I opened up a private practice, just two upper shingles, Sky Law. S-K-Y-Y, Skylaw, P-L-C. That was an exciting time, too. 
to I mean, start your own law yeah, practice. Exactly. That's exciting. Yeah, because yeah. I was learning you know, American history, especially in the 1930s, and I had the whole free market capitalism already ingrained in me because I grew up in that kind of chaos. Yeah, let's go talk. You know, talk this person, talk that person. I don't, I don't care who you are, what you are, your person. Uh-huh. We can figure stuff out. So it's like, okay, let's open up a business. And it was quite an adventure because uh-huh. you literally typing from scratch. I had many clients come in to Women's and Children's Alliance. So that was a big part of uh, my practice because they were well, mostly women who were victims of domestic violence. There's always some kind of child custody involved and that's not covered by any you cannot get really anything divorce or child custody related you have to basically retain an attorney and pay for the attorney so i said i went to wca and i said hey now somebody needs an attorney i'm I'm willing to work with these people and you don't have to pay me the full retainer you can pay me you know as as you can so you give me an initial retainer for the paperwork but what I gave is people who are like at the lowest time in their lives mm-hmm. they have at least some legal representation they don't have to get ten thousand dollar retainer and pay for it something in you wanted to help people who mm-hmm. were really at who needed it people yes. at a low point in their life mm-hmm. you had been through that so yeah. you were willing to listen and help these women and children and so that became your niche Yes, exactly. That was mm-hmm. my niche. And I did many other things. I mean, because I, you know, I've met many people on it. And then once you start practicing, you have people walking into the door and to people telling other people. On yeah, it. So, it, built, so it built itself. It, it built itself, exactly. So I did, you know, and tax stuff and contracts, employment. And so I was really broad kind of exposure. So it was a general law practice, though, yes. where you did pretty much anything people needed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you got another education in yeah. sort of general Idaho law. General Idaho law and met many attorneys and yeah, did the culture and judges, especially because we moved to Boise. It was different from like eastern Idaho. Mm-hmm. It was a little different culture. How did you end up moving to, up to Donnelly? So, yeah, I, I, like be, I like being a cop and I like that criminal stuff. but. Uh-huh. I interviewed for her early when I moved to Boise before I got my practice going. I interviewed with public defender's office with Ada County. They're like, yeah, you're not going to be good with public defender. Because, you know, they're like, yeah, former cop. You have to have a special mindset to to be a very good public defender. And they didn't think I would well, make a you, good fit. Well, a few <laughs> minutes ago, you said, I don't like lawlessness. I want people to follow the rules. Yeah. I want people... You believe in social justice. Mm-hmm. A public defender has to defend anyone. Yeah. That could have been hard for someone with that mindset. Exactly. So exactly. becoming a, a prosecutor mm-hmm. was a more intuitive path for you? Exactly. It was a lot more natural to me. What I'm trying to reconcile, though, is also this distrust of government. Yeah. I want to know how this works for you. Because I am part of it, I know that it's working. Okay. about that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you trust yourself to be ethical and yeah. do a good job. Yeah. You are representing the government. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And because I come from that side of people mistrusting the government, like I understand where people are coming from when they don't. I mean, uh-huh. I understand where people who come to the justice system, uh, many of them are disheartened by it and don't, and don't trust because I, I understand where they're coming from. And you can and meet them. Exactly. It's like I can sit down and talk to people and I'm not talking to them like I'm this government bureaucrat. I'm this entitled bureaucrat and you are just peasant. Mm-hmm. I have no rights. It's like, no, I'm, the, I'm a human being just like you are. 
I'm just working I'm, and I'm providing you a service. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, power can get into anybody's head. And you, you do get, as a law enforcement officer, I mean, you have huge power. You have huge discretion. Mm-hmm. And you got your badge, you got your gun, and you got your radio, and you have an army of cops behind you. It's important to realize you have all the power because the people give you that power. And that's how I kind of approach my whole career and even private practice and everything else. The whole government system and lawyers are obviously part of the government system is literally based on the fact that people give the system this power. And You're here a, to truly serve the exactly. people. Mm-hmm. You truly believe in that. Exactly. I do, yes. Okay. I mean, it's not, the, it's not the other way. No, we're not here to tell people what to do and how to live. Mm-hmm. We're here to, to enforce the law and to serve the people. You do have many people who don't believe in the government and they're kind of mistrustful of it and the police you know, misconduct and corruption. And you, you always hear these things on all kinds of levels. The people who are either incompetent or get power get to their head or corrupt, the people who forget who they're working for. And I want to believe that those people are the exception. Yes, of course. And that mm-hmm. people like you are what we call the rule, mm-hmm. the norm, yes. where there, most people are in there really trying to do a good job. Exactly. Am I being idealistic or is that the case? Well, I cannot speak for the whole government, <laughs> you know, but, but most of the people are, yes. And that's why the system works. We'll know when things fall apart when it's really bad. Overwhelming majority of people who are in these positions, be the cops or any kind of public officials or anything like that, mm-hmm. they are cognizant of what's going on and where that is coming from. And it's important that we kind of support these people. And But it's always good to be reminded of that. My concern is that I see sometimes these kids come from their parents' house, high school, college, law school. They don't work hard for anything. And they get into these positions of power. And I, and I see these people and I, you can tell. Like you can tell they have zero life experience. I mean, they understand the rules because you, know, you have to follow the rules. You have to abide by, you know, by laws and everything else. And, but they do it because they're told to do it. They don't understand, you know. Not because they really believe in it or yeah. they embody it. They're not getting it. Because I grew up in that. I mean, Soviet Union, KGB, you know. So, like, I understand how bad they can get. If you're afraid to say something because, you know, there's going to be a car with burly dudes coming in the middle of the night and picking you up, that, there's something wrong. This is where that power, the government power, this is it can lead if it's unchecked. Mm-hmm. You really get that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's step back for a second. Somehow you ended up in Valley County working as a deputy prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Did that job become available and then you moved yes. to Donnelly? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was just kind of scrolling through Idol State Bar job openings. Mm-hmm. You know, and I... It's kind of nice to look at it because just kind of, you can kind of see what's going on, who is hiring. It's kind of like your daily newspaper because it's like, okay, mm-hmm. this law firm is looking for another person. Oh, I wonder who is leaving. You know, like, yeah. I kind of, but anyway, and then just there was this job opening in Valley County. And I had some cases in Valley County in private practice. And then we came here to McCall a couple of times. We really liked it. I'll just send my resume, see what happens. It's like, it's like, I don't know anybody. There's no way they can take some, some immigrant from, you know, into the position of power type of stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, because you it's... You had to have that, you yeah, had to pause, I, I didn't think, have when any they hooks. take me. Yeah, exactly. I didn't you have didn't any have any hooks. hooks. Crates. Crates. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have my uncle. Why do you think they picked you? Um, I mean, I think the fact that I did have that life experience 
and I had this legal experience. Because uh, as a prosecutor, you get exposed to very dramatic, many dramatic things, and uh, it's not everybody can handle it. So they didn't have to really. I mean, you know, so I knew the law well. Uh, I can have some experience. I obviously got to all kinds of go through all kinds of training, but you didn't have to like really train me from scratch as a brand new law school student who came from you know high school, college to, to law school and I've never seen. You know, never seen somebody shot. I never seen, I never took a rape, child rape report. So I think because I, ha I did have that cop experience and I did have some of that legal experience, mm -hmm. they, they thought I would be a, a good fit. They knew that you could handle mm -hmm. a lot of different situations and not be unnerved by yeah, it. Exactly. Okay. You know, because, you know, you, you get exposed to some really uh, traumatic I bet, uh, yeah. You know, events and uh, some people have it, some people don't. You can't really train yourself to, to get used to that kind of stuff. Right. So tell us what you enjoy or appreciate about your job in Valley County. Just uh, working with people. We have a good group of people in the office. The county employees are all very friendly. The cops are great. They also and I interact with cops. The sheriff's office, the fishing game, and Idaho State Police. You work with a lot of different people, and yes. di yeah, and you mm -hmm. you find that everyone is pretty agreeable and gets along. Yes, this has mm -hmm. got to be different from I'm yeah. imagining the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the Where are the problems yeah. then? We we have we always have you know we deal with people. There's always issues, but we are able to work them out, mm -hmm. and that's where like the communication skills really come. And I always say that. Now, communication is the key to any relationship. It's like you gotta talk, you gotta talk it out, you gotta make sure we're on the same page. So it's definitely it's a people people person work, and also I mean handling cases. Uh, there are all kinds of variety of different cases that come through different crimes. So this, so we, I have a good exposure. So we're kind of like a one stop shop. So we handle all the cases that come through. Because this is, I'm imagining a county where there isn't a lot of crime. What does come through, you get it all. Yes. Mm -hmm. So as chief deputy prosecutor, you meet anyone who's yes. been arrested? Yes, arrested, charged. Uh, so we, and we all have two attorneys. So two attorneys, but we handle all of these uh, different cases that come through. And also we do civil work for the county, advising the commissioners, the departments. And on legal issues. On legal issues, oh. exactly. So it's like a, like a mini, you know, it's a, it's a law office, really. I mean, it's just, there's two of us, but we handle all of these issues. I like that, I mean, it's a still kind of like a small law practice kind of feel yeah. to it. Because you don't feel, you're not, you're not part of like a gigantic bureaucracy. There's two of us and we can sit down. In Idaho, we have elected prosecutors. So every county elects the prosecutor. So elected prosecutors handle all the felony cases for the county, child protection cases, and also represent the, the sheriff's office and fishing game and Idaho State Police. County prosecutors, city prosecutors, and we have attorney general's office. So, if if a case comes in, who determines whether it's a county case or a city case? It's by statute, by law. So basically, it's a, if it happens within city limits and it's a, handled by the police department for that city, then it's uh -huh. going to be a city attorney. If it happens 
anywhere in the county and sheriff is involved, the fish and game or state police, then it's county prosecutor. So then that goes to you? Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, all felonies go to the prosecutor's office too. Out of everything you've done, is this where you feel like you're the most satisfied? I, I do. I really enjoy it. It's just, it's a small community. We do have actually many different cases just because it's a tourist area. Oh. So we have a lot more per capita uh, things going on than you would have in a community that doesn't have the big influx of tourists coming in. Huh. Uh, we'll have spikes and you know, mm -hmm. big weekend, summertime, or winter carnival. I mean, talking about tens of thousands of people who can come in on, on mm -hmm. one weekend. Still do enjoy this kind of uh, small town feel, more laid back. You know, it's not very rigid. So many places, bigger cities will be like very, like, this is what we're going to do. Okay, this is the crime. You know, this is how we're going to answer. This is how we're going to hammer every single time. And we, they don't yeah. have time to look yeah. at nuance. Exactly. And here you can look at someone's history and their capacity and maybe be more flexible. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, because there is that discretion. And I mean, ultimately, the elected prosecutor, they have that They have that discretion, just like law enforcement has discretion. Mm -hmm. Because you know, they look at the facts of the case and look at the law and apply the law to the facts. But discretion more comes in once you have a case going, you know, how do we approach it? I mean, we want to apply justice equally, but at the same time, we also want to look at the person because we don't want to just to punish somebody. But yeah. the way I say it is, I don't want them to come back. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, what do I need to do to make sure they don't come back? Yeah, uh, I and appreciate it, that. And a lot of it is like, okay, when I look at the case, like, who is this person? You know, where are they mm -hmm. from? What did they do? What's the family situation? Mm -hmm. What do they have going on in their lives? Basically, I approach the work now as I used to approach when I was a cop on the beat. Every person I met wasn't just another person I need to arrest. It's what's your name? Well, you know, what's your deal? Where are you coming from? Where are you going? Tell me a little of your story so I mm -hmm. understand what's happening yeah, exactly. here. Exactly. And that's very important. We always, always get that story and background because, you know, we all come from different backgrounds and experiences and it's like some something led that person to to go to that to that breaking point you know mm -hmm. you, you have sometimes these regulatory administrative crimes you, you have to be kind of careful by you, know, you don't purchase your fishing license or you forgot to renew your driver's license it's still a crime but i mean you know we can all imagine situations where you kind of like okay gosh i forgot yes. to renew my license it doesn't make you a you know, a career criminal. It doesn't yeah. mean we're going to lock you up yeah, if you forgot exactly. to renew a license. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So <laughs> um, I'm not as concerned yeah. about that as for people who consciously mm -hmm. do something that's clearly illegal. They have the intent, they have the will and the capacity and they actually do something. And it's kind of like what led you to this point? What do we do to make sure you don't come back? What I've been getting about you is that, as you said, law and order are important to you and you have a strong sense of social justice having grown up without it and then educating yourself about social justice. I'm imagining that Valley County is a place where you can really practice this, mm -hmm. where there's enough respect for the law mm -hmm. and enough cooperation between law enforcement entities that you can actually do your job in a way that feels in alignment and true for you. Yes. Mm -hmm. There's exactly. no, there's not the corruption that you experienced in Russia, mm -hmm. and it's not so hardcore as it was in New York City. You mm -hmm. actually get to do your job. Yes. 
And serve. And serve. So yeah, this has been the longest job I've ever had because it was New York, you know. Oh yeah, how long have you been here practicing? Uh, going on eight years. Eight years. So April okay. was seven. Okay. And sometimes I was like, oh, gosh, I made it this long. Yeah. But you know, it's just time, time to change time, it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's time flies, and it's yeah, I love doing it. I think that's how the approach should be in any kind of you know law enforcement uh, government position because um, yeah, we're here for the people. In the, in the bigger place. The people get lost, you know, they become numbers on the page, names and numbers on the page, and you you lose that connection, and you shouldn't. And I like it here because, I mean, I, I meet the people I prosecute in my community all the time. Like, yeah. they know where I live, they know my wife, kids, but I still have that you know, relationship with, like, oh, they did something wrong, they paid, and they, yeah. they're moving on. And there is, so there's that hope for them. Mm-hmm. And they trust in, that talk back to the trust in the system. It's like they trust the system. Did you just say trust the system? They trust the system. See, now that's another yeah. interesting piece of this. You grew yeah. up without having trust, and now you're in a system that you do trust. Mm-hmm. And I want to, to keep that system, mm-hmm. that kind of system going. You cannot take it for granted. And you get it. Don't take it for granted because mm-hmm. you've lived without it. And many people even in the country don't believe in it. If you look around the country, that people just clearly, you know, not trusting the police, yeah. not trusting the court system. Mm-hmm. You know, like the joke, you know, a good attorney knows the law, a great attorney knows the judge. Think about that statement, everybody laughs, but it's a, it's a very scary statement to make. Yeah. Because if all you need to do is to know the judge, that makes the, that means the system doesn't work. That's corruption. Exactly, that's mm-hmm. corruption. If it doesn't work, we don't need it. It's like, why? Yeah. You know, why even bother? You know, then you have just chaos. Keeping that image of an attorney who is an officer of the law, mm-hmm. who protects uh, you know, the innocent, who follows the rules, is very important. Again, the same thing, talking about people not trusting the system, same thing with attorneys. Pretend the joke is that how do you know attorneys lie? You know, their mouth is open. You know? <laughs> it's very bad because they're literally third branch of the government. You yeah. know, it's like what other profession is a third branch of the government. If you like lose your faith, in one branch, it's like, what makes you, mm. you don't have any checks and balances anymore. There could be a cascade effect. It, yeah, exactly. So, so to close it up today, is there anything you want to leave us with? What would you like people to know? I think that it's what's important, what makes America unique. Um, I'll be on my little soapbox a little bit. One of the things I do on my uh, weekend sometimes, I teach an enhanced concealed weapons class, and I do the legal portion of it. I teach them about the Second Amendment, legal ramifications and laws and everything else. What makes America unique is the government does not give you any rights. You have these rights inherent in you. Every person, you know, was the second step off the boat or the airplane or are born here, you have rights. And it's unique because, you know, most of the other places in the world, the government gives you rights. The Constitution says you have the right for this or for that. In America, the Constitution says this right shall not be infringed because presupposes that it's an existing right that you have, and the government is there, and the Constitution is there to protect those rights. It's a huge responsibility on citizens to make sure they understand that. They are the government. Okay? <laughs> they are the government, and they own it. And as long as they understand that and, and cherish it and protect it and hold people in power accountable, we'll, we'll be okay. 
Beautiful. Thank you. I've never really thought of it that way, so I appreciate that. You can find Serhi um, Monday through Thursday at the Cascade Courthouse, correct? Yes. Or you may see him in Donnelly hanging out. Where do you hang out in Donnelly? The, the public library. With your kids? Yes. Yep. They okay. love it. Perfect. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. I have a, not a renewed respect, I suppose a new sort of appreciation for what happens in our county government. So thank you for that. You. I'm Renee Silvis with Spotlight McCall. Thank you for listening. Now go and find some inspiration.